Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with John Ellis, who's the founder and CEO of Investorus, which is basically a platform that connects developers to property marketers who are able to sell off the plan apartments to their clients. Now, John is an expert in marketing and off the plan sales, of course, and he's kind enough to give us a tour into how development marketing works, how people make their money from a commission's point of view, and how the developers use their marketing companies, real estate agents, and channel marketers to sell their stock. We throw some chin music John's way about off the plan apartments being dodgy and being the place where spruikers live, and he's very generous in answering all of the questions about how people make their money, how property investing off the plan works, and some of the things to keep an eye out for. He's responsible for $24 billion worth of real estate at the moment, which is a huge share of all of the off the plan apartments. So it's a really interesting insight into that side of property. Here's John. John Ellis, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Mike, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, John, to kick us off, can you give us a, a bit of a run through who you are and what you specialize in? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, jo- I'm John Ellis. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Investorist. And what Investorist is, is a, is a platform that helps off-plan property developers sell their flats primarily. Uh, we do that in Australia, UK, USA, and in a minor part, 26 other countries around the world. We've got a, an office in China. Uh, and to put that in context from an Australian perspective, we currently have $26 billion worth of off-plan real estate on our platform. And last year, we recorded 4,200 sales of off-plan real estate. So, uh, a significant amount of volume of real estate passes through our, our platform. That is a big volume. And part of the reason why I wanted to to get you on because, you know, even if people are their investment philosophy is that they don't like buying brand new or off the plan or even apartments there's a there's a lot that you can teach us about how that side of the market works so i'm looking forward to diving into that what about um young john what were the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster oh uh lots of uh, unusual posters i think i had lots of motorbikes i had uh Red Hot Chili Peppers posters, and then I would have had lots of nature nature images. I was always a real nature fanatic. I grew up in uh, in regional New South Wales in a place called Albury Wodonga, right on the border on the Murray. And I used to live uh, near Wagga, so I know oh, the area. Well, then then you would know bushwalking and mountain bike riding and motorbiking out in the bush. That was really my my childhood. Yeah, awesome. I uh, had a posty bike when I was six, I think, um, and that was just freedom. It was I had, a, it was I a, had a, a CT125, so that was the ag version of the posty bike at one yes, stage. Yes, now I, I had the CT110 and coveted <laughs> the 125 for the extra power. <laughs> it's a, Yeah, it's pretty much exactly the same bike. It um, is. Wow, there you go. Just yours what was about- a step through and mine was a step over, which is much cooler, Mike, much cooler. Yeah, yeah. I uh, sort of could wear a dress if I wanted to, which <laughs> took, away, took away from some of the some of the uh, the rock and roll sort of Harley Davidson style. And, and Mike, when, had we were, when we were growing up in the country, you wouldn't blokes did not wear dresses in the country. No. Not when no. we were growing up anyway. 
some of those areas probably still <laughs> they still don't. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of small mindedness sometimes. Be shocked to, for a trip to the visit uh, to the city. Some of them, but anyway, what about um, what about property? How did you get started in in property, John? And what was your first investment? Uh, my first investment was a three bedroom, one bathroom house on seven hundred square meters, actually in Albury. I bought it when I was nineteen. I paid one hundred thirty one thousand dollars for it. Wow. Um, yeah. So I I always loved property, and and thought property investment was a great way to build wealth. My first job was working for a building society uh, in their mortgages division. And so I saw a lot of people buying property and making money out of it and thought, this this seems like a pretty good idea. Awesome. And, and you were working at the building society when you bought the property? Yeah, I was. It was my very first job. I got that at 18. Um, and about a year later, I'd saved enough for a deposit and and bought my first house, which was a, it was very, very central to Aubrey. So it was a great location, but it was a shocking street. It was a really noisy street and it was the worst house. So it was the worst house on the worst street in the best part of town, but it was cheap and I could afford it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost there. It's supposed to be the, the worst house in the best street. Look, um, I think the fundamentals I got quite wrong, Mike, but I ended up in the long run, I did well out of it despite the fact that, uh, I hadn't quite got it right. Beautiful. Now, I'm interested in in the the journey that got you to to where you are. Um, my EA Belinda and I um, have conducted our research, which is basically LinkedIn stalking, um, which is enough. We um, we didn't we didn't pick up the building society, but you were marketing manager for for Mervac um, back in 2004. Was that the the beginning of the I guess the the direct property uh, journey for you? Yeah, it was. Like, I think Hume Building Society started that in mortgages and then I moved into uh, working for a law firm in their construction and major projects division. Uh, and when I was doing that, I just, I really was so excited about uh, about really property and construction and building big things. I was working on a toll road tunnel, uh, doing a heap of, it's really interesting when you work for a law firm doing major projects there's actually a lot of marketing in there, not just legal work. So it was it was really, really fun and exciting. Uh, and then I was approached by a, a headhunter to go and work for another competing law firm. And, and I said, I'm not interested in that, but I want a marketing role uh, for a, a property development firm. And I got the, the role at Mervac. I was 24, so I was the youngest person in marketing ever. Uh, and I was their marketing manager, so it was a big, it was a big gig and and a huge leap of faith for a, a blue chip organisation to entrust a pretty young bloke with their marketing team. Yeah, a, a big business, and as you say, blue chip. They're doing a lot of volume, very well established. Were were you a punt, John? Was I a? Were Were you a punt, or was there a a track record? What 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 made them want to headhunt you at twenty four? I mean, that's pretty impressive. I think I was pretty good at what I did, um, and I, being a marketer, I was a pretty good self-promoter. So not only was <laughs> I reasonable at what I did, but I talked myself up a pretty, pretty good game, Mike. So, yeah. um, but I think I think for a company like Mervac, lots of property development marketers are just are just pitches people. They just produce mm-hmm. pretty pitches and tell 
uh, some reasonable stories, but I think in, in proper, serious off-plan property development and, and placemaking, it's a lot more uh, analytical than that and it's a lot more, uh, you know, you've got, you've, you've got to know your stuff more and you've got to know your budgets more and you've got to have a, a bit of a strategy. And I think that was fairly light on in, in property marketing when I was in 2004. I actually sadly think it's still very light on in property marketing. There's few people out there that really, um, really market very, very well. What was it like back then? What 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 was a typical marketing program for? I'm guessing it was it was um, subdivisions that you were marketing, or was it commercial properties? What 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 sort of properties are we talking? And and what did it look like then? And how has that sort of changed? Yeah, you're 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 not from Melbourne, are you, Mike? No. So my my portfolio was Melbourne, and it was Melbourne apartments. So I had a couple of. Uh, a couple of big ones. Uh, one of them was Yarra's Edge in Docklands, which is about a third of the Docklands. Um, wow. And at the time in 2004, Docklands was a very, very dirty word. And Mervac was just finishing a, a tower called Tower 5, which was well publicized for being a, a problematic tower that had misrep issues and a whole lot of purchasers not wanting to settle. Um, in truth, I think they only didn't want to settle because the market had slumped in Docklands. Um, so I had that that problem child. I then had the exact opposite of a problem child, which was Beacon Cove, which was a large master plan community uh, right on the bay. And this was the, in Port Melbourne and the very final stage of that, uh, which even though the market was pretty soft in, in 2004, it was just such it was just such great property people People just wanted it, so that was a fairly easy good job. Yeah. Uh, and then I had a an apartment project, about a hundred and can't remember how many apartments. I think about one hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty apartments in in a very old established suburb called Canterbury, which was targeting downsizers. Um, and that was that was interesting as well because that was a totally different development where. We had thirteen touch points on average before we convinced um, before we convinced people to to part with their money and move in. Right, and you were you were tracking those those touch points back then, and, and yeah, and that, what, that's always what, what were they typically? That's always been my my thing has been uh, test and measure and change. So even even in my first first gig, it was all about the data. It was all about finding out. You know what what marketing tools are working, what's getting the inquiry, and then what what's tr- converting to sales. Yeah. Now you love property, you love marketing, and you founded or acquired a few businesses in the digital marketing and property technology space. What is it that really gets you jazzed up about this sort of area? Uh, I, I think every one of your listeners will know why you get jazzed up about property. Uh, that that's a given. Um, it's just such a nice asset class that you can touch and feel and be part of. And and I think uh, I've I'm a bit of a serial renovator, so I always like getting my hands a bit dirty with the properties as well. Uh, so properties properties are a, a lovely asset to own and be part of. Then what gets me excited about technology? Well, I, I think property is historically backwards when it comes to technology. So I always like to 
you know, I like to renovate properties. I also like to renovate the property industry and and get in there and do some fun things. Let's talk about the fun things that you're doing, uh, specifically Investorus, your business. As you mentioned in the in the intro, it's off plan, off market, business to business, residential property marketplace. How does it work? Okay, um, so. Let me, let me explain how it works from a consumer's point of view. Mm-hmm. Before Investorist started in, uh, we started in August 2013, before, before Investorist started, I was involved in marketing lots of property developments. Yep. The majority of apartments or townhouses and house and land, even house and land packages that are sold are not sold direct to mum and dad walking into the display suite and buying a unit. Um, mm-hmm. The majority of them across the eastern seaboard of Australia are, are sold through advisors and accountants and financial planners or sold to people offshore. And that is a very complicated purchasing process. Um, what, what tends to happen is, Mike, you'll go and meet your, uh, your accountant and he'll say to you, Mike, you're, you're making far too much money doing these podcasts, interviewing fantastic <laughs> people like John Ellis we need to diversify your wealth. Uh, let's let's get you into some shares and do some other stuff and and also some direct property investment. Um, if you weren't who you are, you might say, oh, dear financial planner, I don't know anything about property. And then the, the advisor will probably recommend to you an off-plan investment. Mm-hmm. Now, before 2013, the advisor would just have to rely on his network of Couple of real estate, a handful of real estate agents, a few developers, probably some property aggregators in that mix, uh, which add to the the cost. And then he would have a small, very small portfolio of of properties to recommend to you. Yeah. What what Investorist does is it assembles a lot of the market. So as I said, twenty four billion dollars currently on the platform. Uh, the whole off plan property market is about fifty to seventy billion. So we've got um, got a good a good chunk of that that stock availability on online. So advisors can then search through that to find the best, hopefully the best deals for their for their customers. For wow. property developers, the challenge is if you're looking to sell down a large development, um, maybe a thousand units, or you've got. Uh, or you're a large builder and you're building 6,000 homes a year, uh, you cannot rely on a display suite and just foot traffic to sell those. You need to have, you need to have a larger network of, of people to help you sell that inventory. So we're pretty familiar with real estate agencies selling a development on behalf of a developer. Obviously, they get very, very excited because it's big volume and they get to put their branding all over it and it's very, very... Very, very exciting for the real estate agents. We're, we're, we're quite familiar with that, but are the developers really doing that exclusively with the agent or is there also scope for a service such as yours to be sort of operating behind the scenes as well? Yeah, we work with a lot. Most of the large real estate agencies uh, are clients of ours, uh, as are most of the large developers. So developers will have two different two different avenues to take a project to market. One will be direct and that's the Mervac model. So they will have their own display suite and their own sales teams. 
the other developers will decide to use a project marketer or a large real estate agent, call it a CBRE, um, and they and they will use those guys to help go to market. Then there's a hybrid model in the middle where they'll have a retail sales agency and they'll have a wholesale strategy. So there's sort of three three approaches, I guess, not two. Um, we we work across all three of those uh, strategies. Yeah, okay. How how typically does the marketing of a development work and how has that changed over time? I mean, uh, I'm talking about the 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 choices for the me the media so is it radio is it tv is it is it print is it always the same sort of story and pitch does it change from project to project can you give some insights on that yeah look it, it changes dramatically from project to project uh and and area to area so if you look at every different market you look at the melbourne market you have probably five or six different sub markets within that at least Sydney's the same, Brisbane's the same. Even WA and ACT have got very different markets within those markets. So when you're looking at a development, it's really important as a marketer to say, okay, well, who is my who is my target audience and my target buyer for this for this lot of properties? And you might find with some developments that will be downsizers. And if you're picking downsizers, you'll have a certain market. Uh, some properties just do not suit a wholesale strategy. Um, some of them are very, very localized and and will sell largely on completion. So it really depends on what you're what you're selling. So the important thing when you're marketing a property development is to say, okay, well, who, who's my buyer? Where are they going to be? How am I going to find them? And in what what volume am I going to find them? So what's the depth? And developers will look at look at a couple of factors. They'll look at their their sales that they need to achieve and they'll look at their cost per sale. But then they'll also look at their time uh, because in development, time is, time is one of the most expensive commodities because you've got holding costs for your land. You've got mm. the fact that you've sunk all this money into your marketing and your collateral production and your architectural renders and your architect's fees and your advisors and your quantity surveyors and all those things. And so you're sitting there, uh, you need to you need to have a certain volume of sales, otherwise your your interest rates will, will lead up your profit. Yeah. What are developers going through right now at the moment? I mean, we're we're recording in May. We're, we'll probably be live in in June. Obviously, we're in the midst of the pandemic. Obviously, you're going to be pretty plugged in with developers representing such a huge um, proportion of them. What what are their their current concerns, and how you, how's your read on the market at the moment? Everywhere has recorded a, a drop in sales. Um, no no one has been immune. So to to put those. Numbers in context, 2019, we, or that sentiment in context, in 2019, we recorded just over 4,200 sales on the platform. We hit our peak second week in March, just before coronavirus hit 112 sales in a week we recorded on the, on the platform. Um, that went down uh, to the Easter, the Easter break, uh, and Easter's always slow uh, because it's a, because it's Easter, uh, that week was only twenty sales, which was which was very low. And then we've got back up now to about just around forty sales a week. We're tra- we've tracked for the last two weeks in a row. Yeah. Um. So 
so that volume is about 50% of what we considered our normal volume across 2019, 80 sales a week. Uh, and I think that's consistent with the rest of the market. Most of my clients are telling me that they're achieving 40 to 60% of their normal normal sales volume. Yeah. And and how are developers reacting to that? Are they thinking, well, it's it's time to to put potential projects on hold or now's a good time to to land bank? What's 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 the strategy that they'd be looking at at the moment when there's they've got those soft sales or is it just more survival mode? We we survey our clients periodically through the year to ask them a range of range of questions. Um, we're, we're just actually launching a survey today to ask developers to get more um, get more quantitative data on that. But if you look at the qualitative data, so I what I'm speaking to to clients about, they're in they're in a number of different camps and, and developers have a range of different strategies. So some of them you're rightly saying they're they're just putting the projects on hold. They're saying I'm I'm going to wait until the market is in my view, uh, a safer market. Others cannot do that. So they're mid, they might be mid-construction or they might be just before pre-sales. They might have their funding. They, they, some, some of them just need to keep selling. Uh, and those developers are again broken into different groups. Some of them are there saying, well, we're going to do what it takes to sell our, our units and that often results in a discounting strategy. So yep. for buyers in the market, it can be a really good time to buy now because some developers are having to discount. Yep. Other developers are um, are not discounting, but they're trying to get their distribution uh, wider, which is where investors comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and others are just others are just hoping for the best and not changing anything. Um, mm-hmm. But then you've got then you've got organisations and lots of our clients are blue chip uh, property development companies and blue chip builders as well that are building house and land packages, and they're seeing people do a flight to quality. So I was talking uh, just the other week to uh, the leaders of a range of companies. We spoke to Blackburn in WA, Geocon in ACT, uh, Metricon from a national perspective. Um, Mab Corporation in in Victoria and and one of the directors of Colliers in Queensland and we had a panel discussion and all of them across the country noted this this concept of the flight to quality. So um, Geocon largest developer in ACT, Blackburn largest developer in WA, Metricon largest builder in Australia, and all of them were saying exactly the same thing. That was when the market is uncertain, you'll have. You'll obviously have people out there that are um, that are looking for a bargain and looking for for a discount. You're not going to find that with those companies. But then you have a huge portion of the market that say, "Well, my my risk profile is already pretty full. Uh, I, I see a lot of risk in the market, but I do have I do have funding. Um, I've got I've got the ability to buy." I see that the time is right, and so I'm going to buy something blue chip. I'm going to have that flight to quality, and that's what yep. they're saying. Interesting. Yeah, I guess it's it's a bit like investors moving to gold, isn't it? The, the blue chip property is, is seen a little bit safer in, in times of turmoil. 
What do you think developers want to see before they have the confidence? Is it consumer confidence? Is it the is it the mortgage freezing um, disappearing and and the unwinding of the job seeker bonuses and job keeper and that sort of stuff, or is it really just they're looking at transaction volumes and and what the market's doing? I think they're just looking at the transaction volumes and what their particular market is doing. It's really important to note that there is no there is no Australian property market. Um, mm. So if you're if you're at the moment looking to sell um, small investor flats in Melbourne CBD or Sydney CBD or Brisbane CBD, um, you, you're probably going to be thinking, "I'm going to sit the market out for a while now. I'm not um, yep. I'm not going in." But if you're selling well-priced house and land packages in the Outer rings of Melbourne, you still th- those guys are still recording reasonable sales volumes. Um, mm. Land still selling and, and values are still the, the, the benefit of land is uh, a, most land developments across Australia were purchased quite a while ago, and they and most of them have got reasonably good margins in them, so they have a little bit of price elasticity, which mm-hmm. which softens that market a bit. Um, where where if a lot of your value is in the construction, um, there's not a lot of elasticity. The margins in that are very tight. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, John, um, we're going to take a little bit of a different angle, and I'm sure people's ears pricked up when you um, recalled the uh, the hypothetical conversation with my accountant about making too much money on the podcast. <laughs> uh, quite the opposite. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's in the red from day one. Um, we've we've taken aim at at off the plan apartments from time to time on the podcast, and and I guess it's 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 easy because there's plenty of stories out there of purchases being stung with with properties where there's no growth or they're paying above market due to commissions or, or, or what have you or, or spruikers. What's your view on this and, and do you think that the bad press that off-the-plan apartments can, can get is warranted? Yeah, I do think it's warranted. Um, I, think, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people in our industry have behaved disgracefully and, and I think you only need to listen to a couple of <laughs> a current affair uh, exposes to to go that is appalling um, people have really been uh, ripped off and I think that's yeah. I think that's um, uh, I think that is evident in every industry where people are getting commissions and every industry where people are dealing with vast sums of money if you have a look at what's happened in the banking industry through the banking Royal Commission, um, there is no dirtier segment than than banking and financial planning, or has historically been. So mm. I think, I think yes, unfortunately, uh, a lot of a lot of the the practices in in off plan property selling have have been historically very very poor. Um, and and who's to blame? Is it? property developers is it the the sales agents is it the the channel marketers or is it everybody uh i don't think i would level the blame at any one particular group i think i think a property developer their job is to develop a building get it sold and get it settled that that's Mm -hmm. fundamentally what their job is Um, when you talk about the advisor network the advisor network, it gets a little bit greyer, but fundamentally my view 
is that their job is to look after their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think, I think if you look at a lot of the large advisor networks around Australia, um, that's clearly their their aim. I I have a, a, a close friend of mine, uh, Chris Christoffi, who owns a company called Reventon, uh, and he has uh, several thousand property investors that he's clients, and he's got these core values on his wall in his office that he walks in and looks at every morning and his I've got his cufflinks on my desk in front of me. Ah, actually, you do. Um, we're getting him on the podcast soon. I met him a little while ago, but we're waiting for his book to come out, which I think it is out now. So we'll we'll, we'll get him on. But yeah, he, sorry, he, go he's, on. A, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, and yeah, he's got. I've got a pair of his cufflinks in one of my drawers at home. Um, <laughs> I wear them all the time, Chris. If you're listening, um, so so I think you know you look at you look at the market and you look at an operation like that, or we have 9,000 members of Investor, so 9,000 different companies. And some of those guys, um, you know, they re- most of them, I should say, really look after their customers. Mm-hmm. So I guess who do I think is to blame? Sadly, I think it is, is consumers and sadly, and, and I think it's the governments are to blame as well. So wherever there's a lot of money to be made, you will find some crooks. You will. Um, and and the reality is in, in the world of commissions, there is potentially a lot of money to be made if you're not acting ethically. But that, um, that I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper. Let's, let's do a, a thought experiment on that. Hypothetically, I've um, gone to the co- crossroads and sold my soul to the devil. Um, I can now play the blues really well, but I'm also um quite prepared to flog off the plan apartments for as much of a commission as I can get. How much money is there to be made if you've got some sort of podcast or a profile or you've established some trust with with people? Is can can you a- absolutely go and make a, a, a killing for, you know in a in a short space of time by putting people in in apartments? Probably probably not. Um so it's it's actually very difficult. Uh, let's let's look at let's look at how a, a property is sold from an apartment perspective, and mm-hmm. then and then talk and then put the commission into perspective there as well. So let's say I'm selling an apartment building uh, in the city, any city in in the capital cities of Australia. I will have a range of costs. Um, let's let's say I'm selling two hundred apartments. The first thing I will do as a property developer is I'll race off and I'll get my marketing material, my brochures, my collateral, all that stuff produced. That's a fixed sunk cost. Channels will, will want to use that as well. That's probably going to cost me about 1%. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'll go and build a display suite, which is primary for the, primarily for the retail market. If I'm selling 200 apartments, I'm spending somewhere between half a million and a million bucks on that display suite. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a, an, an expense that has to be spread across all of the sales that I'm selling retail. Next, next I'll go and sit with REA and Domain and uh, probably a Fairfax publication, and I might go onto the radio station and I'll spread to try and get buyers in. In the in the market uh, when I was running my ad agency, uh, which did over a hundred developments, I, I closed that two years ago. Exited that two years ago. Our cost per sale that advertising alone was contributing to a to a to an apartment project in Victoria was somewhere between eight and fifteen thousand dollars per sale. 
Okay. So if I'm selling a half a million dollar or $600,000 apartment, I've got the, the display suite cost and I've got my advertising cost. And that's probably going to add about 20 grand to the cost of that sale for the $600,000 apartment. Then I've got my retail agent commission, and they're probably being paid between 2 and 3% commission. Yep. So my total cost per sale for that, that apartment will be 30-odd thousand dollars. Yep. A 5% commission, which is the normal channel agent commission, is $30,000. Yep. Um, so the two, the two, when you start to actually break down where the costs are, marry up reasonably well. Now, developers will offer different incentives at different times through their construction if they need to get greater sales volume. So, for example, a developer might offer a, uh, a rebate back to purchases or, or a flexi bonus to agents they can use as they like. Um, and they might do that to try and drive faster sales volume in their project because they're getting a little bit later in it. Um, they might be about to start construction or getting construction finance. They'll, or they might be nearing completion. They'll do that to reduce their financing costs and and maintain their margins. So they're paying more money out, but they're doing that to get a blended a blended cost across the development. Yeah. Um, so if you're a real estate agent and you're selling a development at the easiest time to sell a development, which is when it's just launched and you're selling the first few units, you're probably going to earn five percent which is $30,000, but you have to spend, as the real estate agent, you've got to spend the 20 on the marketing. Right. So you've got to have your own beautiful office to, to show people. You've got to have done your own research into the market. You've got to have all those numbers, the facts and the figures, and you've got to have spent the money on the Facebook campaigns and the Instagram campaigns, and you've got to probably be running your own podcast and like Chris Christoffi, you've got to publish your book and all that sort of stuff. You've got all those costs. So you're not going to be making a fortune out of that at that stage in the development. Yeah. If you're selling a development at those tougher times when a developer offers the bigger incentives to try and get that, that volume, you may be a you may be selling, you may fluke it and you may earn a mozza as a as a as a as an agent, but you'd find that most agents in the market and certainly, yeah, the, I would say 99% of agents that are selling at those different times when there's incentives offered will be rebating a lot of that back to their customers. Mm, okay. um, I know I know from talking to clients where there's huge commissions on offer. So we have, we have projects at the moment that are selling uh, and they're offering 10% commission. Wow. Now, the reason they're offering 10% commission is they're either complete or very near complete and the developer wants to exit that stock. Yep. But the developer wants to exit that stock in a way that protects the overall valuations in that development and the units that are being sold are arguably a little bit overpriced because you don't always get the pricing right across a whole development mm -hmm. and the units that are being sold are probably not the – well, they're clearly not the best units. Through my conversations with agents that are actually selling that, they're rebating often up to six, seven percent of that that fee goes back to their purchases. Right. Okay. So for them, so for that buyer, 
it can be a really, really smart way to buy a property because you've got you need you have to have your ten percent deposit. Otherwise, you can't get your financing. But if you're going to get rebated back six percent, uh, you actually only need a four percent deposit. So it can actually be a great way to get into a property that's a great property. It's just at the wrong time for that developer, and you can you can have a win. Well, that's a that's a very very detailed rundown, and I appreciate you for taking the time on that, John, because I, I think it, it's it's an interesting notion that people are very they're very quick to jump on commissions as being a bad thing, but it's also the way the world works. Like if you are selling your house, then you're going to get an agent normally to look after it for you, and they they're being paid a percentage of the sale price and. Th- if you're a buyer, you are speaking to that agent who's not really advocating for you. But I guess is the buyers should behind- ask the agents. They should. If you're going into your financial planner and they're making adv- giving you advice about yeah. buying a property, you should ask them what what are you getting paid to give me this advice, and can you justify that for me? Because if they if they're not going to tell you, or they can't justify what they're being paid. Uh, in a way that satisfies the buyer and they go, oh, actually, that is that is fair enough. Um, I accept that you've got a business to run. I accept that you want to make money. I accept that you want to drive a nice car. So do I. I want to make money. I'm, th- that's why I'm investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, the, if, you, if your advisor can't justify their fee, um, you probably should find a different one. I think that's very, very good advice. You know, with, with, with say, buying a house, it's, it's pretty transparent, I would say, at how the agency agreement works and roughly what they're going to get paid in percentage terms. Do you think it's, it's because there's a few more nuances to off the plan that that's where there, there are opportunities for people to be unscrupulous and, and there's just you know, maybe a bit of fear around what's happening behind the scenes in, in commissions that aren't being disclosed? I I think an off-plan property transaction is a complicated transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not as straightforward as a house. And I think advisors, when they're making recommendations around properties that their purchasers should buy, have had to do a lot of research and a lot of background work and they've had to invest in their business in systems and processes that a normal suburban real estate agent does not have to invest in. And they've also had to invest in a lot of marketing to find their buyers and have had to have a very long-term engagement with their buyers that a suburban real estate agent does not have to do. True. Because of that, I believe they're entitled to a larger fee. Otherwise, that business wouldn't work. But I also think that that means they have a, a greater duty of care for the buyers that are coming in and, and seeking their advice because they're getting paid more for that advice. Yes. So, so I think um, I think you would find a lot of advisors in the off-plan property space actually conduct themselves with a lot more integrity than a normal suburban real estate agent because a normal suburban real estate agent's primary job is to list a property. They have they have little, if any, duty of care to the buyer. But an off-plan property advisor has more – they have no issue listing. They just log on to investors. There's $26 billion worth of inventory they can have straight away, day one. Uh, but then, then their duty of care is to, the, is to their buyer, to their customer. Um, 
So, so I think the I think the majority in the space respect that duty of care, and I think they um, they manage that effectively. Mm. But I think because it is confusing, because it is complicated, and because you need specialist expertise to to be there, it has allowed people historically to hoodwink consumers, which is not not okay, and 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 thus the bad rap, which which mm. in in some instances, as I, I said, I think is earned. There you go, and I think you're right that the the relationship between the prospective buyer and their advisor is is pretty important, and 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 one shouldn't have to expect the government to legislate in a duty of care. But obviously, there's there's been a lot of breaches, and and that's where you you, you get those issues happening. But um, yeah, the the media is also not going to to want to talk too much about the the good stories about people purchasing off the plan through advisors as well. With we, your we've platform. Got of, we've got a number of our members um, who are advisors that have people that have built substantial wealth through consistent investment in property over time. And they do that, they build that wealth um, in a way that they wouldn't be able to do on their own because they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the expertise, and they don't have the bandwidth to research the market and research the places to to go into um, and they've got now a very loyal band of followers that refer their friends in and they've built great businesses uh, off the back of that. Well, there's a lot of due diligence to do when you're you're opening up a portal and seeing that there's $26 billion worth of options for you to purchase in, right? Not all of those are going to be giving you double-digit growth, you know, year on year. Some of them, you know, might be in flat markets. That's That's the role of the advisor, right, is to do that on behalf of the of the buyer? Yeah, that's correct. It sounds pretty simple with your platform. It, it connects developers to businesses that uh, are in the property game um, and, and puts those, those pieces together. But how does the technology enable you to grow a very, very big business where you've actually got a, a huge proportion of the available properties within your ecosystem, John? I think it's market need more than technology, Mike. So um, if you don't have a central marketplace, an industry is very, very inefficient. So all we've really done is build some technology to provide that central marketplace uh, to make the market more efficient. Yep. So I think it's it's really around you know, providing a a whole listing of stuff. Like if you if you log on to an REA or a domain, those guys have got a great catalogue of properties available for sale. The issues they've got in the off-plan property space is they're very, very light on information. So you can't go on as a consumer and start to make informed property purchasing decisions because you don't have nearly enough information on those, those developments. Where on, where on Investorist, we provide for the advisor contracts of sale, plan of subdivision, all the architectural floor plans, floor plates, elevations, uh, brochures, flip books, depreciation schedules, rental evaluations, full price list, the whole, basically everything they should need to be able to evaluate that that property opportunity is available there for them. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's just that, providing that level of information and being able to organize that in a way that is useful for people. So if you if you just have a whole lot of stuff in a Dropbox account, it's not so useful. 
<laughs> the amount of times I've been sent Dropbox accounts to, to do depreciation estimates, it's crazy. Oh, it's um, awful. Let's talk about the, the property market in, in general. It, it has seemingly been pretty slow to adapt uh, to new technologies, and we're probably only now seeing a couple of examples that, that fit this um, oft-used description of a disruptor. Why do you think it's taken so long, and, and where do you see the, the property market changing from a prop tech point of view? I think... If you let's look at my space, which is the off-plan property space, um, if you look at the the prop tech and the things that have been signalled as real disruptors in off-plan property, it has been things like VR and augmented reality and um, those sort of levels of advances. People have said they're going to change the way people buy property. Uh, blockchain has apparently been going to change the way people buy property. None of these things have changed the way people buy property. Yeah. The reality is that technology does not sell property. Uh, people sell property because people buy property from other people. Um, if you look at even car sales, like people have talked about, well, cars are so commoditized. They're even more commoditized than, a, than an off-plan apartment, but still people don't buy cars online. They go to the car lot and they check out the car and they look at it and they speak to the car salesman and they buy the car. Um, yeah. Tesla I, maybe is, is an example of someone sort of working a little bit different in that space, but... Um, there's still showrooms, Mike. There's still Yeah, showrooms. there are still showrooms, as you say, and, and the product is so different and unique that it's available to do that, whereas real estate, yes, developments will differ from one another, but unless they're exclusive and people have bought into the dream and vision of that developer or it's the, you know a brand-new sand island off Sydney Heads, it's <laughs> unlikely that people are just going to sign up and say, Correct. yes, I'll have that, right? Correct, and there's so many questions to ask. So it's just not possible. If you look at a listing on Investorist, there could be more than a gigabyte of documentation for a development, Um, potentially several gigabytes worth of documentation because there are so many questions that purchasers will have about what is being developed and what's being going to be delivered. So it's just I don't think it is practical or feasible in the current – with the current sphere of what we know from a – technology capacity and a cost to automate and, and, and incredibly disrupt the uh, traditional people selling property part of the market. And I think that's where people are focused on trying to disrupt that. Yeah. Where I see the future of prop tech is to not disrupt, not to try and disrupt that, but to just try and make it more efficient. So, yeah, I was just about to say it's it's about more about the platforms that are leveraging the time and the expertise of people, right? Yeah, absolutely, because people are the most expensive part of the process. So let's just make those people more effective at doing what they're doing. So it, from an invest, investor's perspective, we look at, okay, well, what, what are the things that are really inefficient from an advisor's point of view? Well, it's having a lot of a lot of product to look at and evaluate. It's around organizing that information in a way that doesn't take me ages to evaluate that decision. It's about giving me the exact right person at the right time in the organization to talk to and a way to talk to them that's a little bit more efficient than 
just giving them a phone call or sending them an email that gets lost in their inbox or those mm-hmm. sort of things. So, so that's the part that we've looked at streamlining. Other other participants in the in the market have looked at streamlining contracts and are, and are moving to e contracts. Again, if I look at contracts, having triplicate contracts that are two hundred pages long and printed off and couriered or sent on Australia Post and are delayed, like that's not efficient. That is, and and it doesn't add value. So removing that from the process is where I see prop tech is really going to. Um, excel yeah and it'll be interesting to see what what what's happening with with the market in the next little while i mean we've we've seen disruption really come into a number of of industries you know with the airbnbs and ubers and all that sort of stuff but but i was wondering if if there just wasn't the the perceived value in in disrupting real estate for want of a better term but it's really more about the fact that People are wanting to buy from people, so we're going to have to do something that just leverages the the time of people rather than there's going to be a fundamental shift in the way that we buy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if, if prop tech focuses on how do I get the most out of my human resource and make them the most efficient, um, then, then they'll have a really good chance at supporting the off-plan property industry. Moving back to the consumer for a moment, where do you see some great opportunities for property investors at the moment? Ooh, um, well, I think we talked about we talked about that um, that price elasticity availability in in house and land packages at the moment. Yeah. So, so I think in uh, in the land market in most capital cities, there's a little bit of elasticity. So there's there's good buying to be had there. I think uh, development development projects that are at certain points in their milestones. So by that I mean very close to construction. So if a, if a purchaser is going to an apartment development and it, it's nearing construction, or if they're at about the seventy five percent constructed milestone, or if it's just complete, I yeah. see at those different points they're going to see potential for uh for value buying pre-construction towards the end and at the end they're your red hot tips for where you actually can do some of the best negotiation yeah look i don't don't think if you've got the brand new launch of uh tim gurner's saint moritz in st kilda i don't see it that that point you're going to see good buying but Mm -hmm. but if you're if you're looking to buy apartments and the apartment development has been on the market for a while. Um, there's that seventy percent sold sticker on the fence, or or you're speaking to your advisor and you're finding out that there's uh, less than thirty percent remaining in the development. You're going to find good buying in there um, if you're and and if you're doing that, I would suggest you look at the track record of your developer as well. Because if you if you're in the market at the moment and you're looking at a development that has got thirty percent remaining, it's been in the market for a while. Um, I'd want to be buying off a off a proven developer because of that seventy percent point. You're at that real inflection where um, you can borrow your money to get your job away, probably, but it's going to start being expensive money at that point. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so there could be so a bit looking, of duress. 
I'd be looking for a good quality developer. And that doesn't necessarily mean publicly listed. That just meant it could be a privateer, but but I want to say that this wasn't his first first rodeo. Yep. Uh, and then when a building is nearly finished um, or just, just, just finished, you're going to see good opportunities there as well. Um, you'll see opportunities at the moment in Victoria on buildings that are just finished with nomination sales. And that's where you can actually pick up a, a property that was purchased at a time when Victoria was offering stamp duty savings for off-plan property buyers and the original purchaser can nominate, uh, which means that you can actually pick up some of those stamp duty savings. Interesting. Now, before we, we finish up, John, I've got to ask you the typical crystal ball question. What, what, are, you, what are you seeing for this, this market uh, post-pandemic and, and, and how do you see the construction space re- responding to this? What, um, what's the crystal ball telling you? Mike, I'm not an economist and I'm not a crystal ball gazer. So I, I, I would decline to comment on what do I see will happen because I don't know. Yeah. Um, what I do see that is happening now is banks have allowed people to freeze their properties, their, their mortgages, which means that for, for the next probably four months now, no one in the secondary market has to sell. Yes. So there's very, very little supply coming into the market today. I don't know what will happen in four months, but I would dare say uh, if we start, if, if, if banks and the government believes that we're going to start to see a lot of distressed property in the market, I would suggest they'd probably be looking to do something different. Yes. Yeah, to um, intervene somewhere, somehow. In terms of construction, um, I know that, Construction is an enormous part of our economy and developing new real estate is a huge part of our economy. As I mentioned, about $70 billion worth of stuff is sold and built and delivered every year. Um, the government is wanting to kickstart the economy. They're, they're talking about fast-tracking large projects in all of our capital cities. So I know, um, I know we've got some big apartment projects that have been sitting with planning for ages in in my, my city of Victoria, of Melbourne, that have just been green-lighted by the government. So they're just saying, please build. Right. Um, Interesting. I also know that um, there are talks in government about, about what taxes and stamp duties and things could they potentially ease or change or amend to help kickstart that economy. So, um, so again, I, I, I am not a crystal ball gazer, but I am – optimistic based on the fact that we have had a really positive banking response to the pandemic. Mm. Uh, I think we've already started to see a a good planning response to the pandemic. We should see some supply uh, from from an off-plan perspective and yeah, so so I think there's some good good signs there. Whether that will offset whether that will offset a, a, a sluggish economy or a re- the recession that we probably are, are headed for, or I, just, I, I don't know. We can leave that to the economists. Let's now, John- well, the economists <laughs> get it wrong every bloody time, Mike, so I think we should just leave that to the future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll find out. The data will tell us what happened eventually. It will. Um, if people are wanting to have a, a chat to you, John, is there a way that they can get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. If you reach out to inquiries at investorist.com 
uh, or just jump onto investress.com. You can find me there. Uh, if you're wanting to talk about collaborating with any other sort of sort of item, you can, of course, stalk me on LinkedIn as well, Mike. <laughs> yep. Uh, I've done a bit of that myself lately. Um, so I think there might even be a pending friend re- request there for you, John, because it only seems right after trolling all the way through it. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. It's um, If we can finish off with if there's one piece of advice that you can provide, and I guess with the property investor listener in mind, what would that be? It would be to think about your property purchase in light of your own circumstance as opposed to the circumstances that the media or your friends and family should tell you to think about it. And, and when you're speaking to your advisor, ask them, how does this investment suit me at this point in time? And, and why I say that is I look at my property purchase in Albury, my first one at 19, and I think about now, would I buy that property? And the answer is absolutely not. Not, mm. a, not a chance. Um, why wouldn't I buy it now? Because it was pretty crummy. Uh, it had maintenance issues. It uh, worst house on the worst street. There's no chance I'd buy that now. But at the time, it really suited my circumstance because it was cheap and it was basically cash flow positive. So when you're looking at the, the market, I would say look at what you're what are your objectives with your property investment? Are you looking for something that is cash flow positive? Are you looking for something that is going to appreciate well from a capital growth perspective? Uh, are you looking for something that is blue chip and really safe? Because you can't you can't have all three, Mike. Exactly. Um, if you're going to buy a cash flow positive property today, I don't think that's going to be a blue chip property and I don't think that's going to be something that's probably going to see the capital growth that you might find if you bought something that was more owner-occupier focused. Yep. I think that's sagely advice, John, and a great way to finish. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and and being frank um, with the the industry at large and and all the wisdom that you've, you've imparted today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mike. It's been great speaking to you. Cheers.